I'm very honored to introduce Vivian Gornick. Um, the way that I came to Vivian Gornick was last summer, it's like one of these sort of publishing person fantasies. I was having breakfast with a friend of mine, and I sat down, and she pushed a book at me and said, you have to read this. Um, and I read the paragraph she was pointing out, and then I read the rest of the essay that that paragraph came from. And then that afternoon, I went and bought the book because I was so blown away by this woman who I'd heard of but never had read. Um, the book was Vivian Gornick's essay collection, Approaching Eye Level. Vivian Gornick's writing is both intensely personal and uncommonly insightful. Reading her is like hearing the voice in your head on the page. If the voice in your head were more elegant, more observant, more direct, and more finely honed, at least, than, than my voice is. Miss um, Gornick was born in the Bronx and educated at City College and NYU. She was a staff writer for the Village Voice in the early 1970s and is the author of more than a dozen books, including the groundbreaking memoir, Fierce Attachments. Her most recent book for sale at the back is called Men in My Life, about ten, ten writers, I believe, um, and the, their work and how it's inspired her. I'm really, really honored to introduce Vivian Gornick. Thank you. What I have to say comes at it from a completely different direction. Um, I'll just add a little bit uh, to what she said from this perspective. The the whole world that that she's been talking about begins with industrialization. It begins with the the beginning of the 19th century and what industrialization did to the modern world. The work, uh, what it was to be a worker in the 19th century in the grip of industrialization, which became as ruthless and as rapacious and as inhuman as possible as fast as possible. In the United States, after the Civil War, industrialization in 50 years, within 50 years, it was as close to what we have today as it was ever going to be. I just finished writing a, a short biography of Emma Goldman, who was a great, great anarchist of, of the late 19th century, early 20th century. And, um, and Emma becomes an anarchist out of a working life that is as inhuman as, as it was as if slavery. It was slavery. I mean, bondage of the worst sort. Um, so that people were working you know, seven days a week uh, and 12 and 15 hours a day. Uh, there was never anything like uh, the eight-hour day. And when she becomes an anarchist as a, as a young woman, when she's 20 years old, she's already a firebrand, and she begins her public speaking. And the, the, indeed, the cause of the hour was the eight-hour day, which meant you know people working 10, 12 hours a day. So the eight-hour day was was the big, huge labor issue all over the country for many, many, many years. Emma goes out there as an anarchist, and she tells all these working pe- men, mostly men. Um, this is chicken feed. This is bullshit. You should be fighting for the, de- the, the decimation of all capitalism, big capitalism. That's what we're out for, not, not this chicken shit eight-hour day. And a thin-faced, white-haired man said to her, uh, after many people sat there staring at her, he said to her, you're young, eight-hour eight day means nothing to you. You have years to waste, but I am old, and for me to work four hours less a day, to be able to take a walk in daylight, to be able to read a book before I'm exhausted, I don't have time to wait for the overthrow of capitalism. So that's what life was really like, and that's what we're talking about when we use the word 
work as it was always used. I grew up a red diaper baby, working class through and through. Everybody worked. <laughs> when, the wor- when the word began to change its meaning um, and, um, and we began to say, it doesn't work, right? Uh, somebody who came from my background once said to me, I said, I said once to somebody, the family doesn't work. And she said, you mean nobody has a job? <laughs> so that's what work meant. And everybody did work. Most women worked, but they were shit jobs. They weren't, it wasn't work that meant anything in, that it, it, in, in, this, in terms of the definition of feeding your spirit, of feeding your soul, of feeding, uh, a, making a purposeful life, of experiencing oneself. After all, Freud said, life is work and love. That was the, that was the definition, and that was the, um, the, the equation. That, uh, that, that was the, uh, the order, work and love. For women, it was love. Work? Okay. My mother said to me, you're a smart girl, make something of yourself, get a trade. You should have a trade in case your husband loses his job or he drops dead, or you have to support yourself and the children. It's good a girl should have a trade. When I went to school, my mother, after I graduated, having, uh, um, I'm losing words. <laughs> when I graduated, having majored in English, she said to me, so now you're a teacher, right? And I said, no, I'm not. She said, what do you mean? I said, I'm not a teacher, I majored in English. She said, what have you been doing there all these years? It's a reading novels, and she acted as if she was swindled. She thought a girl what goes into one door marked college and comes out another marked teacher. That's what she thought you did. That's what she was, she was waiting for me to do. The idea that I would come out fit for nothing was beyond the beyond because you had to have a job. This is how I grew up. This is how everybody else I knew grew up. We grew up to become mothers and wives. I, like every other feminist of my generation, found that, uh, that that aroused conflicts in me which I could not solve. So that's the, the genesis of most, most feminists of my generation. We struggled through these lives. We got married. We got divorced. Some of us had children. Some didn't. But we were all pretty much the same in the sense that the idea of serious work Work through which you experienced yourself. Work which was expressive. Work, work which, which, which had, is, as I say, expressive meaning. Work which was not being done just to bring in the rent. That was a utopian vision. But feminism grew out of or sparked tremendously that definition of work. When we started all this, um, and certainly for me, it was paramount. Uh, between us, among us, uh, the, the um, not the subjects, but um, the, the the parts of the missing life were were split between sex and work. For some women, like Ellen Willis, who was a colleague for many years. Ellen, for Ellen Willis, it was sex. In other words, sexual realization, not the sexual revolution, not, not the business of, of sleeping around easily or freely, but sexual sexuality, one's women's sexuality, all of this, I hardly have to instruct you in it. All that was her baby and others like her. 
For me, it was work from day one because from day one I realized I had never had the slightest discipline to do anything because, quote-unquote, nothing had ever been expected of me. This was the meaning of work for women of my generation, the realization, if you follow that phrase out to the end, of what it meant for nothing to be expected of you. That was truly the definition of a second-class citizen. You were, you were, you, you know, I don't have to finish the rest of it. So, (laughs) uh, after this, upon that note, I will read you an essay that I wrote uh, called What Feminism Means to Me, but it's actually uh, about the instrumental nature of work. And I guess it's all, all, all one, all in one. Um, The question of leisure... (laughs) We can talk about from today till till the the end of um, uh, of the world because it is the most problematic. It is hardly the easiest. It is the most one of the most problematic uh, elements of the human enterprise. The question of what leisure means, of how one uses it, or whether one ever can use it, or what the difference is between idleness and uh, leisure, is huge. It's huge. We were utopian in that we thought in the 1970s. Everything we were saying was going to convert in your generation into a lot different than it did convert. <laughs> but, but I'm with you all the way. I think about what you. I think about you almost every day. <laughs> okay, I'd been sent out by the Village Voice to investigate these women's libbers. It was November 1970. What's that, I said to my editor. A week later, I was a convert. In the first three days, I met T. Grace Atkinson, Kate Millett, Shalameth Firestone. In the next three, Phyllis Chesler, Ellen Willis, Alex Kate Shulman. They were all talking at once, and I heard every word each of them spoke. Or rather, it was that I heard them all saying the same thing, because I came away from that week branded by a single thought. It was this. The idea that men by nature take their brains seriously and women by nature do not is a belief, not a reality. It serves the culture, and from it our entire lives follow. Simple, really, and surely this had already been said. How was it I seemed never to have heard it before, and why was I hearing it now? It remains one of life's great mysteries in politics as well as in love, readiness, that moment when the elements are sufficiently fused to galvanize interchange. If you are one who responds to the moment, you can never really explain it. You can only describe what it felt like. I had always known that life was not appetite and acquisition. In my earnest, angry, good girl way, I pursued meaning. It was important to do work that mattered, that is, work of the mind or spirit and to love a man who'd be an appropriate partner. These, I knew, were twin requirements, interwoven, one without the other, unimaginable. Yet I grew into a compulsive talker who could not bear solitude long enough to study. I did not learn to command steady thought. I read novels, daydreamed an important life, mooned over boys. Although I moralized endlessly about seriousness, it seemed I could pursue the man not the work. This, however, and here we have something crucial, I didn't know. 
I did not know I could do love, but I couldn't do work. I was always thinking, when things are right, I will work. I never thought, how come I can still obsess over this boy or that, even though things are not right? In my mid-twenties, I fell in love with and married an artist. I was all set. I had a desk to sit at, a partner to encourage me, a sufficiency of time and money. Now I would work. Wrong again. Ten years later, I was wandering around New York, a divorced girl of 35, with an aggressive style who had written a couple of articles. Beneath the bluster, the confusion was deep, the aimlessness profound. How did I get here? My head throbbed each day, and how do I get out? Questions for which I had no answers until I heard those women's livers. It seemed to me then that I saw things clearly. I was old enough, bored enough, exhausted and pained enough. The lifelong inability to take myself seriously as a worker, this was the central dilemma of a woman's existence. Like Arthur Kessler getting Marxism for the first time, it was as though light and music were bursting across the top of my skull. The exhilaration I felt once I had the analysis, I woke up with it, danced through the day with it, fell asleep smiling with it. I became impervious. The slings and arrows of daily fortune could not make a dent in me. If I held on to what feminism had made me see, I'd soon have myself. Once I had myself, I'd have everything. Life felt good then. I had insight and I had company. I stood in the middle of my own experience, turning and turning. In every direction, I saw a room full of women also turning and turning. That is a moment of joy when a sufficiently large number of people are galvanized by a social explanation of how their lives have taken shape and are gathered together in the same place at the same time, speaking the same language, making the same analysis, meeting again and again in in New York restaurants, lecture halls, and apartments for the pleasure of elaborating the insight and repeating the analysis. It is the joy of revolutionary politics, and it was ours. To be a feminist in the early 70s, bliss was it in that dawn to be alive. Not an I love you in the world could touch it. There was no other place to be except with each other. We lived then, all of us, inside the loose embrace of feminism. I thought I would spend the rest of my life there. What went hand in hand with the exhilaration was the quickly formed conviction that work was now something I could not do without. Loving a man, I vowed, would not again be primary. Perhaps, in fact, the two were incompatible. Love, as I had always known it, was something I might now have to do without. I approached this thought blithely, as though it would be the easiest thing in the world to accommodate. After all, I'd always been an uneasy belligerent, one of those women forever complaining that men were afraid of women like me. I was no good at flirting. It was a relief to be done with it. If love between equals was impossible, and it looked as though it probably was, who needed it? (laughs) I pressed myself again, I'm sorry, I pressed myself against my newly hardened heart. The thrill and excitement of feminist reality made me glad to give up sentimentality, take pleasure in tough-mindedness. The only important thing I told myself was work. I must teach myself to work. If I worked, I'd have what I needed. I'd be a person in the world. What would it matter then that I was giving up love? As it turned out, it mattered. 
more than I had ever dreamed it would. Yes, I could no longer live with men on the old terms. Yes, I could settle for nothing less than grown-up affection. Yes, if that meant doing without, I was prepared to do without. But the idea of love, if not the reality, was impossible to give up. As the years went on, I saw that romantic love was injected like dye into the nervous system of my emotions, laced through the entire fabric of longing, fantasy, and sentiment. It haunted the psyche, was an ache in the bones, so deeply embedded in the makeup of the spirit, it hurt the eyes to look directly into its influence. It would be a cause of pain and conflict for the rest of my life. I love my hardened heart. I have loved it all these years, but the loss of romantic love can still tear at it. It was always there, threatening, this split in me about love, yet I never spoke of it. I never spoke because I didn't need to speak. I didn't need to speak because it was bearable. It was bearable because I had made an important discovery. The discovery was my secret ingredient, the thing that made my cake rise each morning. It was this. As long as I had a room full of feminists to come home to, I had built-in company for life. I'd never be alone again. The feminists were my sword and my shield, my solace, my comfort, my excitement. If I had the feminists, I'd have community. I could live without romantic love. And I was right, I could. <clears throat> then the unthinkable happened. Slowly, around 1980, feminist solidarity began to unravel. As the world had failed to change sufficiently to reflect our efforts, that which had separated all women before began to reassert itself now in us. The sense of connection began to erode. More and more, we seemed to have less and less to say to each other. Personalities began to jar, conversations to bore, ideas to repeat themselves. Meetings became tiresome, parties less inviting. At first, the change in atmosphere among us was only a glimmering suspicion. So solid had feminist comradeship seemed. <coughs> but slowly, it became an unhappy conviction and then an undeniable reality. One day, I woke up to realize the excitement, the longing, the expectation of community was over. Like romantic love, the discrepancy between desire and actuality was too large to overcome. I fell into a painful depression. Existential loneliness ate at my heart, my beautifully hardened heart. A fear of lifelong solitude took hold of me. Work, I said to myself, work hard. But I can't work hard, I answered myself. I've barely learned how to work steadily. I can't work hard at all. Try, I replied and try again, it's all you've got. The first flash of feminist insight returned to me. Years before, feminism had made me see the value of work. Now it was making me see it all over again with new eyes. A second conversion began to take place, the one in which knowledge deepens. I understood that I would have to face alone the very thing my politics had been preparing me for all along. I saw what visionary feminists had seen for 200 years, that power over one's own life comes only through the steady command of one's own thoughts. 
a sentiment easy enough to declare the task of a lifetime to achieve. I sat down at the desk as though for the first time to teach myself to stay with my thoughts, to order them, extend them, make them serve me. I failed. Next day, I sat down again. Again, I failed. Three days later, I crawled back to the desk and again I came away defeated. But the day after that, the fog cleared out of my head. I solved a simple writing problem, one that had seemed intractable, and a stone rolled off my chest. I breathed easier. The air smelled sweet, the coffee strong, the day inviting. The rhetoric of religious fervor began to evaporate in me, replaced by the reassuring pain of daily effort. I could not keep repeating work is everything like a mantra when clearly it wasn't everything. But sitting down to it every day became an act of enlightenment. Chekhov's words stared back at me. He had said, others made me a slave, but I must squeeze the slave out of myself drop by drop. I had tacked them up over the desk sometime in the early 70s, and my eyes had been glazing across them for more than 10 years. Now I read them again, really read them. It wasn't work that would save me. It was the miserable daily effort. The daily effort became a kind of connection for me. The sense of connection was strengthening. Strength began to make me feel independent. Independence allowed me to think. When I thought, I was less alone. I had myself for company. I had myself, period. I felt the power of renewed wisdom. From the Greeks to Chekhov to Elizabeth Cady Stanton, everyone who had ever cared to investigate the nature of human loneliness had seen that only one's own working mind breaks the solitude of the self. A hard truth to look directly into, too hard. And that is why we yearn for love and for community both laudable things to want in a life, but not to yearn for. The yearning is a killer. The yearning makes one sentimental. Sentimentality makes one romanticize. The beauty of feminism for me was that it made me prize hard truth over romance. It was the hard truth I was still after. Everything I have just written, I have lost sight of times without number. Anxiety, boredom, depression, they overwhelm, they blot me out, I forget. Slavery of the soul is a kind of amnesia. You cannot hold on to what you know. If you don't hold on to what you know, you can't take in your own experience. If you don't take in experience, there is no change. Without change, the connection within oneself dies. As that is unbearable, life is an endlessness of remembering what I already know. So where does that leave me? In perpetual struggle. I have endured the loss of three salvation romances, the idea of love, the idea of community, the idea of work. With each loss, I have found myself turning back to those first revelatory moments in November 1970. Early feminism remains, for me, the vital flash of clarifying insight. It redeems me from self-pity, bestows on me the incompre uh, incomparable gift of wanting to see things as they are. 
I still struggle with love. I still struggle to love both my hard heart and another human being at the same time, and with work. The daily effort remains excruciating. But when I make the effort, I am resisting the romance. When I resist the romance, look steadily at as much hard truth as I can take in, I have more of, my fe- of myself. Feminism lives in me. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I want to add something to it. Clearly, what I have written here is, and what I've lived with, and what I and what I live on and with, and all the rest of it, is it's what's called an elitist <laughs> preoccupation. Uh, the whole world of of ungratifying work, of of um, you know mechanical work, of work that is drudgery still exists. Uh, And at the same time, what I wanted to say, too, was when I wrote this, when I was living through all this, I thought your generation was going to pick up the mantle of this utopianism. This was utopianism to me, that people would struggle to use the idea of work to think think more intelligently uh, about their lives. In other words, it would be instrumental. It was a way of, I didn't believe that love was, was an instrument of, of uh, not of salvation, but of self-discovery. I still don't believe it. It doesn't mean that one doesn't need love, that it isn't part, a huge part of life, but I don't believe that it is as good an instrument of self-discovery as work. In other words, that application to apply yourself to a problem, to set out a problem and, and apply yourself to it and solve it, that is a kind of discipline that I think you learn more from than loving. Maybe I'm wrong. You write your. <laughs> if, if I am, you know, somebody else will do the job. But that is what I thought work was going to become. Instead, what has happened is <laughs> uh, a, the generation after mine suddenly became hysterical about: Can I have it all? Should I have it all? The, the children, the, and indeed. Uh, capitalism just moved right in and made uh, tremendous use of it, and it has saddened me immensely. Um, all this every two, every two years, the Times runs another post-feminist article. The investment brokers are going home to raise the babies. Right? Nobody wants to work anymore. These women are exhausted, and then another bunch have to answer that uh, and, and go on with it. It's 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 horrifying to me, and it's because. Feminism is it was a, in my generation certainly was a, a visionary action. It was it was it was visionary. It was it was through it you you had a whole new view of the human condition of the way life could be and should be and the way the world could be and should be. But then everything got sucked into this incredible, unbelievable consumer consumer society, which from the 19th century utopianism on, from the 18th century, from the Enlightenment. Uh, where the I, the idea was that uh, you know the wor- the workers will will work less, uh, the rapaciousness of capitalism will be reduced, and everybody will uh, read poetry and listen to Beethoven. Uh, that turned out to be a thousand million times more problematic than anyone ever dreamed it could be. The fact is, the workers, when they got um, less more money and less time. Uh, they sat down in front of a television set with a beer in their hands. Uh, so that, and everybody else has gotten into uh, this huge uh, consumerism and an idea of success at the lowest level of contemplation imaginable. 
that is a thing to think about. That is the burden of freedom. The more, the better the society becomes, the freer it becomes in the old terms, in terms of reducing or doing away with um, the most fundamental needs. You know, to 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 have uh, uh, to have enough money to pay the rent and feed the children and all the rest of it. Uh, that's the lowest level. When they thought that when that would be solved, then higher-mindedness would take over. But higher-mindedness comes very dear. Uh, so it, it has all turned out. So if from, from my perspective, when I look at women in their 40s, 30s, and 40s, um, and, and many, many have come to me and said, look what you did to us. You, know, <laughs> you promised me every... I heard, if you can imagine how many times I've heard this. You promised me everything would be different. I'm married to this guy. He won't pick up anything. He doesn't do anything, um, et cetera. I say, I say, the burden is yours. All we did was define the problem. We were the insurrectionists of the day. We couldn't solve anything. We were like the anarchists of, of the moment. We, we just said, fuck this. This is who we are, not this. Right? We, we're here, we're here to, def- to, to reveal the grievance that we have about history and uh, the world that all women have ever, ever lived in. We're here to define ourselves differently, but we weren't here to solve problems which will take generations to solve. And as far as I'm concerned, a serious attitude towards work is key to that salvation. And a serious attitude towards work is not making money and it's not owning stuff. It's, it's of a different nature. But again, uh, Astra gave you the real world. I'm giving you an ideal one. <laughs> <laughs>